The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone from the metro New York area. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, today's episode... Uh, episode is, is, is a unique one, but it should become more frequent. We are going to be discussing the unique elements of state historic preservation offices in the United States. It's a topic that a lot of people don't know very much about, especially folks who are not involved in the everyday running of archaeology and uh, those who are not unusually fascinated by the compliance operation, which we've talked about quite a bit, and as most of you know, is responsible for the performance of the vast majority of archaeological projects in the United States. Today, I would like to begin with one of the more colorful uh, state historic preservation operations, and as you'll see as we progress in this program, it is quite a unique one. My guest is is Nick Laracuente, who is uh, effectively the uh, state historic preservation office representative. Uh, it's I don't know if he's formally the SHPO. He'll tell us that SHPO being of an abbreviation for state historic preservation officer for the state of Kentucky. In Kentucky, the uh, program is officially run by the Kentucky Heritage Council, and uh, Nick has uh, completed his uh, work and research at the University of West Florida and has been involved with the state for a number of years and as we'll discuss the very unique elements of Kentucky archaeology are something that he knows obviously very much about so let's start by introducing uh, my guest today uh, Nick Liraquente. Nick we're very happy to have you here and I guess I'd like to start by asking you how you got uh, into your position and explain just a little bit about the unique elements of, of the Kentucky Heritage Council and what your oper- what your responsibilities are as the archaeological member of the State Historic Preservation Office. Okay. Um, well, I kind of stumbled into the uh, the role that I'm in in the SHPO's office. Actually, um, I was 
walked into a, a coffee shop at uh, the wrong time or the right time. I'm not sure which. And <laughs> um, my uh, future boss was there, and uh, there was uh, an opening that just uh, you know she had just found out about, and invited me to to come in and uh, interview with another um, uh, set of people in the coming weeks. And uh, I guess that was uh, going on six years ago now. Um, and so I started off as a, a, a just a reviewer that concentrated on uh, transportation projects, and um, so uh, basically what that means is any transportation project in uh, in the state of Kentucky uh, goes through uh, KYTC, the Kentucky Transportation Department, and um, they review it for uh, you know if, is the work sufficient, uh, have all the historic properties been identified, um, is does more work need to be done and then make recommendations to uh, our office, either, you know, no historic properties are being affected by this project uh, or maybe some are being adversely affected and we recommend more work. And uh, basically our role is as a kind of mediator. I mean, we, we review, um, make sure that all of the work is in compliance with the National Historic Preservation Act and then uh, concur or ask more questions or don't Concur with uh, the recommendations that come before us for, um, geez, uh, literally thousands of projects a, a year, um, and that's just just looking at the archaeology. Um, I work with others that look at the above ground effects, um, and then our office also does like tax credits, things like that. But uh, I'm just a, a very small part of um, uh, the office, which is complicated. Um, I specialize in the archaeology. I my role is basically just in the 106 realm. And then uh, my boss, who's the actual shipper you mentioned earlier, you weren't sure if I was the actual officer or not, but uh, Craig Potts is the... um uh, our the Kentucky Shippo and um, everything kind of goes before him and he signs off on those letters. Um, so I don't know. It's just it's a unique job. I mean, it's a uh, kind of dull in an aspect where you don't really get to do any of the excavation anymore. You're basically looking at the hundreds of archaeologists that work throughout the state and all of the material that they send in, and you're just uh, kind of guiding, uh, you know, more survey needs to be done in these areas, more work needs to be done here. But um, it's fascinating at the same time because then we get to see the breadth of archaeology across the state, everything from paleo-Indian sites up to uh, uh, distillery sites, which is uh, what I specialize in. You know, you're hinting at the distillery sites, which is certainly going to be a major focus of what I want to talk to you about. But getting back to more basic issues, I would like to ask you how um, the breakdown of archaeological sites that get reviewed by your particular office, how does it break down in terms of prehistoric and historic, just so that we get a sense of it, and how you would compare it, say, to neighboring states uh, in terms of relative proportions of archaeology done and the type of work that you guys do? Well, I mean, uh, when you're saying reviewing sites, um, there's a, a lot of work that uh, we review that actually involves no sites at all, where a survey happens and um, nothing's found, because that's the first step of the 106 process, really, is to identify any historic properties that can be affected by an undertaking, whether it's building a highway or a, a big uh, storage building of some kind or, you know, 
messing with the stream. Um, so, I mean, and then the way you identify that archaeologically is by doing shovel testing, GPR, what have you. So we see probably hundreds of reports a year that have nothing in them, and we're just confirming that an adequate level of effort was done um, on that particular APE. But um, as far as the sites that we do see, though, um, I mean, it, it varies. Um, one of the weird things, I suppose, to kind of jump ahead to the end of your question, uh, to answer that first, is that they have kind of blinders on whenever um, we're working in the SHPO's office. I mean, there's so much coming at you uh, on the state level that there's not a lot of time to kind of poke my head up and see what's going on in other states. So I'm not sure how our level of effort really compares to, say, um, Tennessee or the Virginias. Um, I do know that uh, we have something on the order of um, about 35,000 archaeological sites in Kentucky, but only about maybe 10% of the state has actually been surveyed. So uh, there's quite a bit out there, and uh, it's fascinating because you walk in the door and um, every day, and you don't know like what's what's getting ready to hit, uh, what new site has been discovered, or what new um, kind of complicated problem there is uh, that involves impacting a resource that we already know about. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's say. Um, are most of the sites prehistoric? What What is the breakdown, and, and how has it changed over the years? I know that's a tough one to look at and to quantify. Maybe you guys don't quantify them, but can you give us a general idea? My impression in in general is that there was a lot more focus on um, prehistoric uh, initially in Kentucky. I didn't give you an exact breakdown, but I mean, when I first got here from from West Florida. Um, I was coming back. I was born and raised in Kentucky. And um, it was odd because even though I spent a lot of my life here, I didn't know archaeology was in this area. I thought you had to go to Mesoamerica or somewhere like Mm -hmm. that in order to to actually do archaeology, right? So um, there's a lot of uh, earthworks, uh, cave sites, uh, things like mud glyphs inside those caves and rock art throughout uh, places like Daniel Boone, National National Forest, and um, I mean, because the the fascination with uh, the prehistoric uh, people starts, I mean, way back in the 1800s, before there really is such a thing as, you know, looking at uh, historic sites. And you can see it reflected in the the Kentucky State Plan. Um, there's a two-volume set that you can actually get off the uh, the Kentucky Heritage Council website. It's a few thousand pages on archaeology in Kentucky. And in those two volumes, there's I don't know, probably uh, close to a thousand pages on uh, prehistory and the different time periods. And then there's one chapter on um, the historic period. And um, it's not for lack of historic period sites. It's just that it wasn't until maybe, I don't know, the 1960s and 70s that we really started to, to look at them, which I don't think is uncommon across the United States, really. No, I, I think you're right about that. I think uh, as time goes on, there seems to be a stronger concentration, certainly relatively speaking, on historic sites. And, and part of that, my feeling, is that we've become a little more sophisticated in the way we look at historic sites. And, and there's so much more information to mess with or, or to simply analyze. Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and uh, there's some interesting problems. Like a, a few years ago at our state archaeology conference, we've uh, had a roundtable discussing uh, what what do we do with farmstead sites? Um, these sites that 
have a little bit of historic artifacts to it, maybe a historic house foundation, but um, you barely clip it during a, uh, a 106 project. And so what questions can you actually answer from a kind of a, an ephemeral historic site like that? Um, because they are important, but how does archaeology really contribute to those questions? And some of those things are really getting fleshed out, which uh, I'm happy about because a lot of our arguments on um, that shipping offices have to make on you know further work is needed or not is mm-hmm. uh, based on whether or not there is research potential in these sites. Without those those questions being posed either through overarching historic contexts or you know uh, we can learn these things from these types of sites, we don't have a lot to hang our hats on. Understood. I, I think one of the questions that I, I've surveyed, uh, speaking to a number of state historic preservation officers, as well as having worked in many states myself, is that there is this overarching question uh, with respect to historic sites where uh, researchers and to some degree the public, as, as well as, as teachers and, and people involved in pedagogy are saying, well, we, we, we have such a well-documented written record that uh, maybe the archaeology simply cannot provide all that much information, even though the archaeology gives it to you in a very living form. And so uh, in the traditional knowledge sense of the word, well, we have all these accounts, we have documentation. I mean, ultimately, we're going into the 18th century at the earliest or 17th century, in in some cases, um, rarely into the 16th. But um, there we have excellent documentation. So is the archaeology really giving us a whole lot? of information. What's your response to that? Well, I mean, that's where you get the peaks into the things that weren't written down, right? That's right. I mean, um, there's so much that's not written down that people either wanted to forget, because, I mean, uh, not to pull it back to the distilleries, but with the written history of whiskey distilleries, there's very, very little written about uh, slaves being involved in that particular industry. It's not something that the, the active distilleries really want to talk about, even though you see people like Jack Daniels starting to kind of reveal the the slaves' place in their history. I think they just started that in the last year. So, I mean, there's very clear contributions that archaeology can make. Um, In Louisville, we're seeing a lot of things with, um, like, residential areas that uh, you can look at the Sanborn maps and identify, all right, these neighborhoods are um, majority, uh, like, German ethnicity or, or other ethnicities. So, can we start comparing the material cultures here and start to talk about social inequality, maybe other things that are implied, they're between the lines and that are written down in history. So uh, there's lots of interesting things, but it's um, something where I feel like we need to get better at maybe articulating these things, because, uh, I mean, we hear... Whenever we're challenged by the public, which we get a lot of that, like, why do we have to spend X amount of dollars excavating this site? What are we going to learn from a bunch of junk? Um, I've heard arguments that are very sophisticated, uh, talking about, okay, we can learn these things that are not written down to um, archaeologists to say, you need to dig it and you need to listen to me because I have an archaeology degree, so I am right. And, um, right. you know, that that's just not going to fly. Um so I don't know, but uh, that gets into people needing to be more conscious of uh, the need for public archaeology and justifying what we do, which might be a whole different conversation. 
Well, and that's a topic actually, Nick, that I want to get into a little bit in in this discussion. And we will be back with our very, very intriguing and interesting discussion on uh, Kentucky archaeology and some of the issues that are universal and some which are uh, peculiar or particular to Kentucky. Right after these words, stay where you are. We will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset? Your home. Is it from a reality show on cable TV? A comparison website? Or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Why do some people seemingly make the same mistakes when it comes to love and relationships? What is the best way to find love? Make a visit each week to Destination Love. Host Shelley Pumphrey will bring what you need to know to find love. No, it's not about the next fad, dating site tips, scoring the first date, or looking your best. Rather, it's empowerment, knowing that your authentic self works best and the science behind finding love. Destination Love is live Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest today is Nick Laraquente, who is the Site Protection uh, Program Administrator at the Kentucky Heritage Council, and uh, he is essentially the State Historic Preservation Officer in Archaeological context for the state of Kentucky. Nick, I, we, you were mentioning a couple of items that I think require a little bit more elaboration, and you had mentioned in passing that often people will say, okay, why do we have to dig this historic site? Because we already have all this historic documentation, and we know what happened here based on accounts. And you very clearly mentioned, well, there is information that is preserved underneath the ground or near the surface that doesn't make its way into the historic accounting. And I was just wondering if you're getting a lot of that kind of pushback, and if you do, uh, how carefully do you transmit the message that um, what you see underneath the ground is very often very different from what gets documented in the written archive? Well, um, 
there's a variety of ways, <laughs> really. Because, I mean, usually the argument is uh, maybe not that it's all written down, but it's like how can you how can you possibly learn anything through just kind of digging up these bits of garbage? Like, especially when it comes to historic sites, you get a lot of people that are like, that's an artifact. That's something that my, my, my grandmother would have been using. And it's not until you really get somebody involved with all the different steps of it that, um, that they really start to see uh, the light, I suppose you could say. So, I mean, uh, I think Kentucky's been very good um, before I even got here, uh, really, of um, trying to address some of those issues. Uh, like, for example, there's a, a weekend festival that's held in um, Red River Gorge, part of Daniel Boone National Forest, every September uh, called Living Archaeology Weekend. It's uh, coming up on, I think, 25, 26 years of this happening now. Um, and there they, they demonstrate like these are this is how like adults are used and how people did um, different types of prehistoric technologies and that we learn how all of these technologies actually work through the archaeology that's been done in Red River Gorge um, because there in the the different rock shelters and other sites the preservation has been uh, tremendous so we can get ideas like um, Red River Gorge is one of the first places that agriculture was really happening in the world it's one of the the, uh, the harves of uh, agriculture, and we can start mm-hmm. to talk about how we learn those things through the materials left behind. So, like I mentioned earlier, um, I grew up in, a, I guess, a different area of Kentucky where we didn't have those kind of festivals, and I just didn't realize that, you know, history was just literally right underneath our feet here. And so, um, I got involved with uh, the Jack Jewett House. I, had started uh, working on a PhD at the University of Kentucky. And um, they have events there every year since, I guess it started in the 1990s, where they had every sixth grader in Woodford County, which is near uh, Versailles, is the, the county seat. It's a little south of Frankfurt. But every um, sixth grader in the county would go to the Jack Jewett House historic site, and they would excavate with University of Kentucky archaeologists every year, working on um, some different outbuildings around his house. And um, so Jack Jewett himself is significant. He's a Revolutionary War hero, saved Thomas Jefferson from being captured by the British at one point, came uh-huh. back to Kentucky, and retired on a, a land grant. Then he becomes a, a leading Kentucky statesman. He gets into agriculture, a little bit into like horse racing and such. And um, so the house is there, and everybody's focused on him because of you know that heroic activity. And then gradually the story starts to change. People are looking at his uh, the materials left behind. They're trying to figure out how a spring house works, and you know that sort of thing. And these are sixth graders being taught by university students and professors. So. Um, I guess around uh, 2010, they're no longer doing active excavations anymore. Instead, there are artifact activities where they start to sort these things into functional groups, and we talk about Stanley South's functional groups to the the sixth graders, and then we're like, all right, so break out your calculator. Let's look at percentages of this and see what we can actually learn from the the materials that were recovered earlier. And um, at that point, I was there as a a PhD student um, uh, helping this, and I'm, I'm, I don't know, getting my hands dirty, talking like directly with these students, and I live 
live right there in that same community. And one thing led to another, and I was suddenly on the uh, the board of the Jack Jewett House, which is uh, new to me. It was like uh, seconding motions and things like that. And uh, that's when I started to learn to start to say no to opportunities, too, by the way. Um, anyway, How do you mean? How do you mean that? Uh, you know, getting overwhelmed when people are like, hey, you, you know a lot about archaeology. Do you want to come out and um, do this activity for us? And uh, mm-hmm. sooner or later, you've got to start to realize the limits of your time and energy and um, everything else, right? So uh, that's where I started to learn that. Um, however, uh, when I was on the board, I came across uh, some documents about uh, Jack Jewett and his distillery, which um, that state plan that I had mentioned earlier, I had been looking through that for uh, potential dissertation topics and whatnot, and I found like a little paragraph or two on the distillery industry, and only two distilleries in Kentucky had really been looked at in any detail at all, but they were found to be like extremely disturbed. So it was marked in that the state plan as this is an area that needs archaeological research. And so that's when I started to think about doing a project. And um, the people at the Jewett House were very excited about it, but um, they wanted to go kind of uh, to the max. They wanted to open it up, have a big community archaeology project, um, invite anybody in that could come in, and it wasn't really um, meshing with the timetable that you have to take where you have to go before a committee, get your dissertation proposal approved, all of that, before you can really start field work, right? So um, I was going to put it off, but uh, one of my good friends, because I just started working here at the Heritage Council, and uh, one of my friends, Phil Johnson, uh, was... He basically pushed me because uh, he's, uh, well, he's not with us anymore, but uh, he was fighting cancer at the time and yeah. uh, was talking about how, um, you know, you just need to seize those opportunities and just go for it when the opportunity presents itself and to not worry about it and just go. So I went with it, and uh, in the first year, I was the only archaeologist associated with the project, and we brought in 130 volunteers in all. And it was people from um, everywhere from four years old to maybe up in their 80s or so, even though they're not, they didn't tell me exactly how old they were. But uh, we opened it to anybody that was physically able to make it to these sites. And all they had to have was an interest in Jack Jewett, history, whiskey, or just being outside and getting dirty. And so (laughs) that many people came in. There were thousands and thousands of volunteer hours uh, that were donated um, to the project. And we basically completed a phase one. Um, delineation of Jack's distillery site um, that was one of the earliest distilleries that we know about in Kentucky. It started around 1790 or so. We know that slaves were um, uh, used there. His uh, master distiller was actually a slave who he uh, tried to sell in a newspaper whenever he left Woodford County. There's actually an ad um, offering to sell the, the finest distiller in all the land. Um, so there's aspects there that we can really start to sink our teeth into when it comes to like bigger research questions. The really interesting thing that happens there, though, is that out of those 130 volunteers, we had um, people that work in the coal mining industry, um, some people that were engineers, people that had never really thought about doing archaeology at all before. 
And whenever we start by, all right, this is how you start to do a 20-meter grid over the site. You close into close interval shovel testing. These are the reasons behind this methodology and what we're looking for. And this is how we translate the pattern of artifacts into understanding the human activities that are happening on the site. Um, it really opens some people's eyes. They're like, holy crap, I didn't realize this is, you know, you could actually <laughs> learn this stuff. So now now uh, we're kind of broadening this um, this uh, activity. Uh, we're starting to compare other farm distilleries that are in uh, Woodford County with each other and starting to talk about the differences between, all right, this is a farm distillery um, that we're uh, they're eventually taxed out of existence by the government. We actually get into to, um, anthropological theory talking about like a political economy and whatnot with these people that have never taken an archaeology class in their life, and everybody's having a great time with it. So um, the cost of that to me was, uh, you know, time-wise, the commitment to that project, my full-time job with the state, I ended up having to just table the PhD for a while. I may come back to it. I may not. You know, who knows? Um, but the benefits have been uh, pretty enormous because uh, now, um, you know, there are people that were in those sixth grade classes in the 90s that they remember that distinctly working with the archaeologist they've came and started volunteering in the project as adults and they're bringing their kids in because they view it as one of the most uh, interesting activities that they've ever had and then these people also have buy-in to uh, the preservation of their own history we have a lot of folks that are uh, descendants of distil- uh, distilleries like master distillers that are maybe upset that uh, their history is being kind of overridden by the uh, kind of active distilleries that are, uh, are in Kentucky because you hear all about, say, the wild turkeys, but you never really hear about some of the others, right? Right, um, right, right. Yeah, uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to take a break here oh, again, sorry. but we're gonna come right back with uh, my guest uh, Nick Laraquente and discuss the signature uh, industry of Kentucky and its archaeological representations and depictions. Right after these words, uh, stay where you are. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you want to stay on the cutting edge of the bioeconomy, tune into TerraTech with host Jim Lane. Every day, new and substantial products are in our lives. What we wear, eat, and drink, in our travels, and in our health. 
Terratech will spotlight these products and show you where and how they are being used. Listen for Terratech live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Join the innovators and the innovations and move forward. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schuldenrein back with a special episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. My guest today is Nick Laraquente, who is the Site Protection and Program Administrator at the Kentucky Heritage Council. And Nick has been talking about one of uh, Kentucky's signature industries, and we were just discussing what we meant by a signature. And, of course, when you think of Kentucky and it's a special identity in the United States, people think of racehorses, they think of coal mining, and, of course, they think of whiskey and bourbon. And uh, Nick has launched and been involved with a program that brings Kentuckians back to their roots in terms of the industrial era and their particular association with the distilleries and with the whiskey industry. Nick, tell us a little bit. You were beginning to describe how you incorporate people into active archaeology, or what we would call in this day and age, action archaeology, and how you draw them in and how you make them aware of what archaeology does in terms of teaching them about their history in the whiskey industry and how the distilleries themselves are registered on the ground and how people get fascinated with this kind of an enterprise touching the actual materials that are associated with the production of whiskey and the processing of it. All right. Um, so a few questions all at once there. So uh, we'll start with, um, I suppose, the, the breadth of the uh, the whiskey industry. As um, Right now, I, I believe that, uh, well, I guess a few years ago, we were at uh, maybe 30 active distilleries in Kentucky, but I think it's actually a little bit more now if you uh, include all the um, different craft distilleries and whatnot. And it's... Um, responsible for just huge amounts of revenue in Kentucky. But, um, I mean, if you look at it broadly uh, throughout the whole history of Kentucky, we actually have hundreds, maybe even thousands of uh, distilleries just across the state. Um, It was basically a necessary element of uh, early Kentucky frontier life because there is a problem of not really having currency uh, during early Kentucky, and so Mm -hmm. people would distill a whiskey, and they would actually use it in a barter economy, and they would trade a few gallons of whiskey for helping with, uh, say, getting your barn raised if you needed that kind of labor. Um, so for a little while there, uh, whiskey was basically money, and that's where we got into the uh, the political economy with the um, uh, that I mentioned earlier, because the 
government doesn't really like it when you can just distill as much money as you want, right? So um, there's course, there's yeah. some limits on that. Um, so because it's so widespread though, with those thousands of distilleries, um, if you basically trace anybody that's lived in Kentucky's uh, for more than like a generation or two, uh, if you trace their family tree, you're going to find that they're either tied to a moonshiner, a legal distiller, some sort of alcohol distributor, or um, somebody that's heavily involved in the temperance movement. Um, so, I mean, right. my mom would probably lean on the uh, the temperance movement side, <laughs> but I do have moonshiners in my family, too, so I'm pretty sure of it anyway. <laughs> so, um, and I don't know, that, that link there is uh, maybe what uh, keeps some of the people involved in the program. Uh, one of our volunteers is actually the um, great, 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 great granddaughter of Jack Jewett himself. So she's got a more personal uh-huh. connection there. But others have always been interested. Either they own property and there is a distillery on it or, or whatnot. Um, as far as attracting people in... Um, Literally, all we did is we have an open door policy. I mean, if you can come in, you can fill out the sheet that says, uh, uh, you know, I'm able to actually hike in the woods and do some archaeology, and um, um, they're they're welcome. So we actually get a lot of people in that are just kind of curious and. Um, the training that they get is just kind of the same as you would get in your first archaeology field school. It's like, all right, here you need to push all of this clay through the quarter-inch screen. You can't dump right. any of it. Of you need to find all these tiny artifacts. And if they come back after the first day, then they're usually pretty committed to the uh, to the project. <laughs> so, um, but uh, and that includes like hiking in and out of the sites with all your materials and whatnot. So, um, yeah, we've definitely had a lot of interest that way, but. Uh, I guess another um, kind of funny story uh, to show just how integrated the bourbon culture is here is uh, one of the first times that I went looking for um, distillery sites. Um, I lived in Versailles, and my neighbor was actually the uh, the grandson of uh, the master distiller at uh, Canada Dry Distillery. They used to do whiskey in addition to ginger ale. Now it's just, I guess, ginger ale and other stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, he took me out one day. He was going to show me like uh, different places that his grandfather had told him about that were good for whiskey distilling. And um, he, I think he had inherited this, but it was an old Rolls Royce that he just kept in a, a garage. So he kept like a, a bottle of Grey Poupon mustard in the dashboard and just rode this Rolls Royce around every now and then. So we uh-huh. went around different haulers looking for distilleries. And we would just roll down our window, um, like talk to somebody out the window because the Rolls Royce is great for breaking ice, right? Um, and after they get done talking about the car, we ask about distilleries. And everybody that we talked to that day knew where at least one or two were. And they were always like, that pile of rocks over there is where so-and-so used to distill all the time. So that's where I started to ask a question of, well, what does this look like archaeologically? Because surely every pile of rocks in Woodford County and Anderson County is is not uh, a distillery. Maybe it is, but uh, most likely it's it's not. Um, 
so we started to look around the modern distillery industry, like going on uh, the different bourbon trail tours and whatnot, and you can kind of break um, distilleries down by the same basic processes. Like at the very beginning, you got your grains and water mixed together and they ferment for a little while. You put them in a still that then, um, you know, you add some heat to it and the alcohol condenses out. And then um, you can do different treatments at that point, but then it ends up in a barrel at some point. Uh, depending on if you're making whiskey. Yes. Back up, back up with the still itself, because a lot of people don't know what that process is. So why don't you uh, give people a little bit of an explanation and then tell them how that still, when it's taken apart or when it's broken apart, how does it survive and how do you start recognizing those elements of a still uh, in, in, in what is clearly overgrown forest in many cases? How do, how do yeah. they do that? Yeah. Well, it's complicated <clears throat> because the stills themselves, they're nearly always made of copper. Uh, I've heard of a few cases where they could be made of uh, some other materials, but uh, almost the standard is copper. So you think of like a copper pot still or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, with industrial distilleries, it gets a little different because then you can have like column stills that are like four or five stories tall that have the same purpose, but they're also made out of copper. Um and the reason they get complicated is unless you have a moonshine site where um, the law has come in and put an axe through the still or something, a lot of times they're not there anymore. Um, they're very valuable. Um, if not being used as a still itself, you can sell the copper just like you can today. And so whenever somebody's done with the site, often the still is one of the first things to be sold. So what we look for archaeologically is these stills had repairs done to them every now and then, um, uh-huh. or they start to rust and pieces of copper falling off. So we actually use a metal detector. Uh, one of my uh, good friends, Scott Clark, has uh, a years and years experience with metal detecting, and he can um, use a discrete search that takes out all the iron and only fa- finds uh, copper signatures. So we look for bits of copper left around. And if we find um, copper that's concentrated around a thermal feature, usually there's Mm -hmm. some sort of firebox or something that the still would have sat on, um, then we know we found the still location. So, so far, this has only happened once on the three different farm distilleries we've looked at. It's a little different when you have an industrial still distillery because there's so many fire insurance maps and stuff associated with those. You can actually find the still on the map and kind of geo-reference it, the farm distilleries is a little bit more complicated. So let me ask you, uh, let me ask you it, uh, as you go along with this, uh, what makes, uh, geographically certainly and in terms of a setting, what makes an ideal location for a still? It depends on um, what, what tier of a distillery you are. So if you think of um, the modern distilleries like the Wild Turkeys, uh, Jack Daniels, uh, Buffalo Trace, whatever, um, mm-hmm. the, those are more industrial distilleries. Their, their primary purpose is to output as much awesome whiskey and bourbon as you can drink, um, or really as you could sell, I suppose. Um, <laughs> farm distilleries are smaller. They're run by farmers, obviously. They really don't exist after, say, prohibition because of taxes and other problems. Um, and really, it's just a farmer or a mill converting their crop into whiskey because it's easier to sell, doesn't spoil as quickly, or they need it for maybe other uses depending on the time. Moonshine is basically anytime you're trying to do this all illegally without paying taxes. 
the reason that's significant is that if you're looking for a moonshine site, the things you look for are, are much different. You need water. You need access to water. You need an access to grain. And you need a place to, to actually sit up and run your still and then, you know, mm-hmm. get your jugs or whatever off. So you need those four things. But with moonshine, um, the primary thing is you have to hide this from anybody. So you'll put it in, like, extremely in, inconvenient locations. So around Daniel Boone National Forest or Big South Fork, um, you find a lot of these stills in rock shelters where sometimes the only access to water is whenever it rains and you've got water dripping off of uh, the drip line of the rock shelter. And so whenever it's raining, then you're running your still. The legal distilleries the farm and the industrial, they try to put their stuff as close to a constant source of pure water as they can. So you find them um, in Woodford County in particular, if there's a spring in a hill, there's a very good chance that that would be a good place for um, a still. Um, The other primary thing that they look for is easy access to the market. So the really early farm distilleries that I'm looking at, they have a spring, but they also always have a road that goes straight out to the Kentucky River. And Mm -hmm. And during the early 1800s, there was a lot of different ports on the river, and you would be able to ship your product, take it a few miles down to the river, and then ship it to Louisville, New Orleans, wherever. Um, And that was just critical. The other interesting thing we're seeing with farm distilleries is that they make use of um, very sharply sloped valleys, and they actually terrace them with roads to where it looks almost like somebody could bring a cartload of corn or something, whatever grain they're dealing with, up on one of the terraces and dump it in the top of maybe a mill or something like that. And right. then gravity's assisting, you know, the process because then you get your stuff milled, the distillery's located a little bit closer to the other road, and then by the time the distilling's done, you move it to the river. Very efficient. Um, and it also mirrors some things that we see in other places in the world, like um, in, the, in Peru, there was a survey that Prudence Rice did um, on wine bodegas, and it also takes advantage of using a slope, having gravity assist you with things, and so you see the beginning of the uh, the winemaking process start right. at the top of the slope, right? So, same thing happening here. We will be back with this very unique discussion on the archaeology of Kentucky, its uniqueness, and the whiskey industry. Right after these words, we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you trying to discover how to thrive in business and follow your purpose? Tune in to Entrepreneur Enlightenment with host Irina Benedict. You will learn how to combine practical business strategies with spirituality so you can grow your business with ease. If you've been searching for purpose, for freedom, for fulfillment, tune in to get your questions answered. Listen live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. 
This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest today is Nick Laraquente, who is the state archaeologist for Kentucky. He's uh, the project administrator for the Kentucky Heritage Council. And uh, Nick has developed a uh, reputation and a uh, specialty in the archaeology of whiskey, because he is from Kentucky, and obviously Kentucky and whiskey are almost synonymous. Nick has been talking about how archaeology is practiced in at, in the areas of stills and how historic archaeology in Kentucky is, if not centered, certainly very, very much tied to the emergence of the whiskey industry. And tell us a little bit about the story of Bourbon Pompeii at Buffalo Trace and how you became sort of the uh, specialized archaeology of a very unique project that brings together public service and the bourbon industry. Yeah. So um, I suppose the uh, the Jack Jewett archaeology project that we've been talking about that um, made enough waves that people just started referring to me as the uh, the bourbon archaeologist. Um, I think Maggie Kimbrell was probably the first person that called me that, and it just kind of stuck. Um, so last year, I guess around maybe March or April, um, Buffalo Trace is doing a uh, a renovation project uh, where they were ripping up the the floor of one of their warehouses. They were going to turn it into a reception space uh, for fancy parties or conferences or whatever. Um, and whenever they they took up the concrete floor of this large warehouse, they found uh, ruins underneath it and uh, just lots of other materials that they weren't really expecting at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd done just a little bit of work for them just years ago uh, when I was still a student at UK. And uh, between that and um, keeping up on my project, they're like, well, let's just call the uh, uh, the bourbon archaeologist Nick and get him out here and see what he thinks. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting being called uh, just specifically for, you know, that specialty. Um, and then fortunately, they are located right down the road from the office of my, my day job. So, after I um, 
saw what they had and was uh, showing them as like, okay, you have actually um, kind of stratified deposits. It's really complicated uh, deposits. The first time I saw it because it's half excavated with the backhoe and uh, kind of talked them through that. And then also some of their foundations they had there, they actually had like dressed uh, limestone that should have been exterior walls, but was for some reason right in the center. Um, They decided to bring me on and I spent uh, basically all of my lunch hours for most of the summer last year out there um, documenting profiles, uh, collecting samples of different areas. And um, we found that not only did we have the remains of a building from um, 1882, we also had a lot of different fermenting vats. So um, since we're running short on time, I mean, basically the conclusions of everything that we found was um, E.H. Taylor was a, a distiller that founded the Old Fire Copper Distillery. He was trying to make um, a big difference in the, the whiskey industry by making, uh, like adding kind of cleanliness standards. So he has mm-hmm. this, um, this ad that really talks about the distillery as a whole, that the whiskey touches nothing but copper, from beginning to end of the process and it has these kind of uh, special like um, sterile techniques that others aren't using at the time. Part of that was these huge 14,000 gallon um, fermenting vats, eight of them just going down the left side of the warehouse, subterranean lined in copper and nobody else was really doing that at the time because that's where the the grain and water would like sit and ferment at the very beginning of the process. And those things were actually still there. They were just covered over with a concrete floor. And whenever we, we dug a little bit more, because originally that was going to remain undisturbed by Buffalo Trace's project, we found all of the fermenting bats. Well, five of the eight fermenting bats um, still intact. And what had happened was in the 1950s or so, Whenever they decommissioned that uh, that area of the plant, they just ripped out all the copper again because you can recycle and sell that, and filled in the vats and then poured concrete over top of it. So you can actually see like axe marks in some of the copper sheeting that we were getting out of there, where they had a hard time kind of pulling that off neatly, and they must have been mm-hmm. in a hurry, so they just threw it in. And then we also found pieces of uh, the foundations from uh, his 1882 distillery because it was struck by lightning and actually burnt down. And then there was uh, elements of the 1869 distillery that came before all of that. So it's interesting because Buffalo Trace, uh, I mean, they, they could have decided, you know, this is a budget breaker project. We just need to kind of cover it back over and continue with the reception space. Instead, they deserted it decided not only to preserve it all, but also to interpret it all. So they've changed the project to where they're building a system of catwalks over top of all these ruins and fermenting vats and stuff. And we're actually working on exhibits right now to talk about each layer of the distillery, like why certain aspects are preserved, how it lines up with lithographs that we actually have from the uh, the archival resources, and uh, really kind of filling in that story. So it's an interesting story, not only because Taylor is quite a character and probably the one of the first distillers to be involved with heritage tourism. Um, but it's also interesting because we can talk about how, uh, how you interpret stratigraphy on these sites. And there it's very, very clear because it's, um, 
lots of different fill deposits that are very discreet from each other because they're not, they're just kind of filling holes as they have them. You can see the lines very clearly. You can see like uh, different flood deposits where you have like a clean break and garbage above and below. So it's uh, fascinating for me being able to talk about those aspects of it. And those are going to be interpreted in the exhibit as well. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. And then, um, I've also, um, for anybody that's listening, I put the 3D scan of these ruins on um, the Facebook page of this program. So anybody can click there and you can actually fly through the ruins and uh, check out what's there. Uh, this was scanned before the catwalk went in, so you can see it kind of uh, naked, I suppose. Wonderful. Well, I just advise all my listeners to go to our Facebook page and uh, proceed and take a look at that. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up this discussion. I want to thank my very special guest, uh, Dr. Uh, Nick Laraquente, who's the Site Protection Program Administrator at, Administrator at the Kentucky Heritage Council. And uh, this is a fascinating indication of how state historic preservation is uh, focused directly on the specialties and uh, the signature elements of each state. Nick, thanks so much for being on our program. Thanks, Joe. Thanks. And we will be back next week with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We will see you then. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.